welcome to episode 133, Would Anyone Like Some Ham? As mentioned in episode 131, the term ham radio started as a diss against amateur radio operators by professionals, who considered the ham-fisted morse key work of their unpaid counterparts a nuisance on the airwaves. Amateur operators took to the airwaves in the 19th century, but the hobby remained an expensive luxury, and few stations did anything much of interest or use until the 20th century. As the price of components and eventually commercially prefabricated transmitters and receivers gradually fell, more and more people took up the hobby. Precursory license tests, demanding a certain minimum words per minute proficiency in sending and receiving Morse code, and the practical necessities of transmitting and receiving effectively imposed a bar to entry that ensured anyone working the amateur frequencies knew what they were doing. As the number of ham stations increased, so their participation in physics research, emergency communications, and education programs increased. Ham stations began making contact with Antarctic teams in the wake of the Second World War, and being the only means for people to communicate with the outside world beyond their employers or service superiors, became an important morale boost for many of the people spending the austral winter on the ice. Where the Spark Gap wireless set, taken south with Mawson's AAE, could only transmit Morse code using a damped wave signal. The continuous wave transmitting that arose with the advent of thermionic vacuum tube or valve-powered amplifiers allowed Morse code when atmospheric conditions made dots and dashes the only thing a receiver could pick out as the signal against noise, and voice transmissions mediated by amplitude modulation when conditions were good. More complex transmitters made use of single sideband modulation, increasing the efficiency with which an amplifier and transmitter converted sound into signal by emitting the carrier signal and the lower side modulation, leaving more power for the actual output, though at a cost of increased complexity of the hardware and the expertise required to make the best use of it. While still in use in ham, maritime and aviation contexts, Morse code isn't as widely recognised now as it was in the 20th century, and I'll digress a bit on the basics in case millennial listeners are entirely lost on the matter of dits and dars. While it's named after painter Samuel Morse, one of the co-inventors of single-wire telegraphy along with machinist Alfred Vail and physicist Joseph Henry, Morse didn't invent the code that became the standard means of transmitting meaning on the apparatus he contributed to. Samuel Morse originally envisioned telegraphs sending only numerical values, representing words or phrases, senders and receivers using lookup tables to encode and decode messages. Alfred Vail, the engineer who realised Samuel Morse's ideas for adapting European telegraph models into the single-wire mode that came to dominate worldwide communications for a century, developed the dot and dash coding of the 26 letters, 10 numerals, and various special marks known as Railway Morse, or American Morse Code, eventually used worldwide. Vail ranked the characters from most to least used by visiting a newspaper compositor and noting which letters took up the most space on the typesetting cases. Again, millennial listeners might be perplexed by terms such as typesetting, compositor, and newspaper, but I'll have to let them search the terms if they're interested in fleshing out their understanding of the Westerworld that I'm from. Vale assigned the shortest combinations of short and long signal bursts 
dots and dashes, or dits and das, to the most often used characters. Less often used characters required up to four signals to transmit, but E and T each require only one. Telegraphs originally transcribed received signals onto a paper strip, but users found it easier to listen to the incoming Morse-coded electrical signal, translate it to letters in their mind, and write down the message as it arrived, cutting out the paper tape step. And that's how Morse code was generally used in radio telegraphy. Amateur radio stations operate in a range of frequencies set aside for amateur use, and mostly use short wavelengths, defined as less than 200 metres. This range incorporates most of the high-frequency signals, which range from 3 to 30 megahertz. Very high-frequency radios, often used in aviation and handheld comms, operate in line of sight. Low-frequency signals, such as AM radio, can propagate over the horizon using ground wave diffraction. The long wavelengths and low oscillations allowing the signal to turn over mountains and the curve of the Earth. Ultra-low frequency signals can transmit directly through the planet as Earth mode propagation and mostly remain a military outlet for communicating with submarines while they're submerged. The abandoned US Navy ULF antenna array at the Cape Range, Western Australia stands as one of the biggest and eeriest anthropogenic structures I ever visited and I'll append some pics to the blog page for this episode. Surreal stuff. But the high frequency radio signals we're discussing here can reach beyond the horizon by bouncing off electrically charged particles in the upper atmosphere. Skipped wave transmission degrades with the number of bounces between sky and land, but with the optimum atmospheric conditions, a powerful transmitter can communicate with itself by bouncing a signal around the entire planet. Sunspot activity makes pretty auroras over the polar regions, but these light shows are the visible manifestation of electrical flux that makes skip wave propagation impossible. So high levels of auroral activity usually coincide with high frequency shortwave radio blackouts. People use their amateur radio outlets in the myriad ways people use the internet, often seeking contact with faraway people who share their interests. But making contact with and demonstrating you made contact with someone far away became a goal in itself. Ham radio operators printed postcards with their station details and address and mailed them to other operators they sent messages to or received messages from, outlining the details of their radio contact. Many hams use Q code to communicate across language barriers. Q code uses Morse code letters in groups of three to send and receive prearranged messages far faster and without any bothersome linguistic misunderstandings that might creep in to full-length transcriptions and transmissions of the same information. For example, in maritime transmissions, the Q code triplet, Q-R-A, asks, what is the name of your vessel, when sent as an interrogative, denoted by the prefix I-N-T, or states, the name of my vessel is, when sent without I-N-T. Q-codes gave amateur operators a list of simple questions and answers that ignored the many thousands of years of linguistic and cultural evolution that sees so many international conversations stall at the My hovercraft is full of eels stage. The Q-code triplet for Do you confirm receipt of my transmission? or 
a confirm receipt of your transmission is QSL. And this became the name of the postcards operators sent one another as confirmation of contact. I first encountered QSL cards when Matt Koopman's father, Case, showed me his array of favourites pinned up on the wall of his radio shack. Ranging from plain and simple through to highly stylized, they each represented an operator taking pride in their expertise and reaching out to fellow humans by means of their technical and operational prowess. Case also showed me his own QSLs with considerable pride, and I hope I expressed the extent to which I felt impressed by his rig, his contacts and his cards effectively. I don't have many memories of Matt's father, but that encounter counts as a good one. Operators receive a call sign when the local radio transmission governing body issues their license. I don't know the history of those identifiers, but most of those I've heard of comprise alphanumeric strings of five or more characters. The first letter or the first two letters denote the country, the numeral that follows identifies a region within that country, and the remaining letters form a unique identifier for a particular operator. After several trips between sky and ground, a single sideband voice signal sounds like it's coming from flatland, if that makes any sense to you. It sounds two-dimensional. Static is a given in most receivers, but there's also something about the timbre of the voice coming through the speakers. The cadence and accent of the voice transmitting are preserved, but the process of amplifying, transmitting, receiving and re-amplifying the message induces oscillations of tone around the syllables. It can sound downright eerie as the signal degrades further towards unintelligible noise, but the ability to transmit information over such large distances remained unsurpassed for decades in spite of it sounding weird. And those technologies that did come about to do it better generally cost a lot more for a long time. Here's a snippet of Vivian Fuchs speaking to a friend at the BBC during his transantarctic expedition, drawn from the audio of 150% The Jules Maidy Story, made by Thomas Henderson and available from Graceful Willow Productions. Uh, welding of various things uh, which we had some trouble with 
but that's all over now. Uh, the seismic's gone off all right, and we've done our shooting today. Uh, anything else you'd like to know, Ernest? Intelligible, but not anything close to the signal quality we're accustomed to after growing up with FM radio and high-quality telephones. Unlike telephones, radio sets can't send and receive at the same time. Radio operators use over to denote they've finished a given transmission and are leaving the channel open for a response. This cuts down instances of people stepping on each other's transmissions as the person receiving a message waits until they hear over before pressing their send button, which otherwise overrides the signal already underway. It's not a hard habit to fall into and you don't often hear people talking over one another in ham operations, let alone in aviation or maritime radio communications. The problem of people tripping over their over mostly arises when a radio signal is linked into a phone network. Phone users, accustomed to live microphones at both ends of the dialogue at all times, forget to say over at the end of a thought, and the person making the patch has to listen carefully to know when to switch their radio from send to receive or back again. The technology interfacing the radio and the phone signal can't handle the changeover automatically, so no phone patch from the ICE to folks at home ever constituted private conversation, as ham operators needed to listen and work the switch and interject to remind participants to say over at the end of a thought in order to make their own contributions to the communications, that being the manual switching between modes, easier. Drawing exclusively from Thomas Henderson's documentary, 150% The Jules Maidy Story, here's a brief outline of one ham station's contribution to the human history of Antarctica. In 1956, Jules Maidy, among other ham operators, responded to an advertisement calling for civilian radios to listen out for broadcasts emanating from Operation Deep Freeze, the USA's large-scale contribution to the International Geophysical Year kicking off in 1957. The teenage Jules and his younger brother John, already immersed in ham radio through a physics-minded mother and an interest in radio-controlled aircraft, upgraded from their self-built transmitter to an off-the-shelf commercial unit of higher power in anticipation of playing a part in their nation's Antarctic endeavour. While still attending high school, Jules and John sat up into the small hours of the morning sending and receiving with the base personnel at McMurdo and Bird stations. Jules bought and rigged equipment to patch a phone line to their transmitter, allowing Americans in Antarctica to speak to loved ones in the USA. Operation Deep Freeze personnel stationed at Pole Station didn't expect to have any contact with friends and family during their deployment, but the rapidly developing technology employed by ham operators established the link. Jules Mady providing the first such phone patch to the South Pole. Besides connecting Antarcticans with those they left behind, Jules Mady and fellow ham operators provided a social outlet in themselves, becoming good friends with many of the personnel their time on air put them in contact with. A conduit for information about births, deaths and marriages, ham operators also provided sports news, recipes and gossip. Jules Mady and his brother began experimenting with a drum scanner, which, when reception conditions didn't interfere and the machinery all synced up, converted images into a radio signal for printing at the far end. Baby photos arrived in Antarctica months before the new fathers met their progeny 
in the form of radio facsimile, which is a pretty damn impressive feat for two teenagers in 1958. When the US Academy of Sciences asked American Antarcticans to list people off the ice who contributed to the success of Operation Deep Freeze, the participants listed ham radio operators as among the most important, and Jules Mady topped the list of ham operators, having spent long hours diligently serving the communications needs of people he hadn't met far away for no financial reward. He received an Edison Award for service, and the United States Antarctic Program flew him to Antarctica to experience the places and meet some of the people his efforts allowed him to reach out to. Several of the people he befriended over the airwaves became lifelong friends, and Jules Mady remains involved in gatherings of veteran Antarcticans. In 1979, a couple of ham operators with a particular interest in Antarctica started the Worldwide Antarctic Program, the original WAP, as a directory of ham stations operating in the far south. The website that arose as everything paper turned digital underwent some political argy-bargy in the early 2000s, but today looks steady and stable as a valuable resource for anyone seeking direct contact with the Antarctic continent and its temporary denizens. The Worldwide Antarctic Program represents itself with a logo featuring a penguin looking bemusedly at an antenna array it appears to be trying to get to work. Rather charmingly, in my eyes, WAP documentation refers to stations rather than the people involved. So when I note that the initiative was kicked off by India One Yankee Hotel Whiskey and followed up on by India Kilo One Gulf Puppet Gulf, they know who I'm talking about and it likely makes as much sense to you and I as had they used their first and last names. And that reminds me to add some notes on the phonetic alphabet. With radio sometimes struggling to provide a good signal-to-noise ratio, radio operators recognised a need for readily distinguishable representations of letters and numerals for use in voice-based transmitting and receiving. Many of the names of the letters we use rhyme, and some, such as N and N, are hard to distinguish, even if the person saying them has excellent diction, so spelling out anything over the radio necessitated a more readily differentiated form, leading to the birth of spelling alphabets. As with almost every human endeavour, people kicked off their own projects independently and arrived at workable but entirely incompatible solutions. The British Army swapped out the most easily misinterpreted seven letters with words, but left the other 19 as letters in their 1904 signalling regulations. The earliest complete spelling alphabet noted in the Wikipedia article on that topic arose in Tasmania, and it shares no common ground with the international phonetic alphabet in use today. Just because I find it interesting, it runs Authority, Bills, Capture, Destroy, Englishman, Fractious, Galloping, High, Invariably, Juggling, knights, loose, managing, never. Owners, play, queen, remarks, support, the, unless, vindictive, when, expeditiously, your, zigzag. I won't go into the whole story as that seems better suited to an episode of 99% Invisible, but it is fascinating and long. The upshot being that in 1959, the current international iteration came into use 
with an ear for ready transmission and reception against a background of radio and on-site interference, and for ready use by English, French or Spanish language speakers. It runs Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot, Gulf, Hotel, India, Juliet, Kilo, Lima, Mike, November, Oscar, Papa, Quebec, Romeo, Sierra, Tango, Uniform, Victor, Whiskey, X-Ray, Yankee, Zulu. Numerals received pronunciation enhancements rather than replacement, and it can sometimes pick someone as having a history in radio telephony when their fives come out as fifes or their nines are spoken as niners. Ham radio remains a hobby popular among the physics-minded Antarcticans, and the Antarctic QSL cards are hotly sought after by operators further north, with the pole being the ham radio QSL grail. Ham stations in Antarctica have spoken to residents aboard the International Space Station and bounced their signals off the moon to reach outside the continent when skip wave modes didn't suffice. It's no longer the sole means for personnel spending an austral winter in Antarctica to communicate with friends and family, but the enthusiasts, who never numbered among the majority, remain enthusiastic. That's the thing about passion. That no one else shares it doesn't diminish the extent to which it winds up the clockwork of the passionate person. Antarcticans no longer rely on a handful of physics-minded Jules Mateys to make and maintain their contact with the outside world and keep up the link because it's interesting to them. It was never about providing the sole means of communication home for the bulk of Antarcticans. It just happened to do that for a number of years as an emergent property of a hobby driven by scientifically minded amateurs. I love ham radio operators because I understand obsessive hobbies no one outside that small circle of interest understands or cares about. My hobbies haven't impacted world events to the extent ham radio has, but that doesn't make them any less interesting to me. And I love that ham operators continue to make contact, swap QSLs, and delight in fulfilling the very human need to communicate, even if those outside the hobby deride it as pointless in the internet age. Read some YouTube comment sections and see if you still think communication in the internet age is actually up to much. I see the two modes as inverse. Hams can communicate because they started in on a project driven by a desire to communicate. YouTube commenters communicate because they can. A lot of the identities I've encountered in my online peregrinations couldn't pass a Turing test, but everyone operating a ham station, regardless of their cultural or linguistic background, strives to exceed that communication standard every time they announce Charlie Quebec. Closing out episode 133 is Can You Hear Me? Composed by Wally Gunn and performed by Passaport 2 Duo and used here with the permission of both parties. And if you can't work out why I chose the piece, go listen to Joe Rogan or something more your speed. I've listened to Wally Gunn's output through a wealth of musical iterations over the past 26 years and am delighted his work led me to Passport 2 Duo. Links to their web pages and a picture of a serendipitous mechanical coincidence in the show notes. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Meesham is best avoided.
Go to their website and listen to Can You Hear Me Part 2 for the full story. Demonstrate you've supported the artists in some way, and I'll sort you out with some iced coffee audio not available in the RSS. Thank you.